Well, Merry Christmas, Townsville Ferry. We're in the Christmas season. Who's excited about Christmas here this time of year? Yep. And uh, we're grateful for those of you who might be spending your first Christmas with us at Johnson Ferry. We've had lots of new faces this last year, so I'm sure many of you are doing that. I want to say hey not only to you in the AC, but also in the sanctuary, so grateful for you and from wherever it is that you might be tuning in from around our city, around the world. Uh, this is an exciting time. We're kicking off a new series today called The Gift. And so in just a few minutes, I'm going to read part of the Christmas story in Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I just want to celebrate where God is helping people find truth, belonging, and purpose in Jesus. That's why we exist as a church, to help people do that. And the Christmas season is a wonderful time for you to be inviting and bringing uh, guests and friends and neighbors and coworkers to come and to hear about Jesus. And you heard about Sounds of the Season this coming week, which is a great opportunity to do that. Uh, this last week, our women's ministry put on an incredible Christmas event for women all over our community. And I know that uh, God used that in, in great ways. But we, we heard about five women that came to Christ uh, this last week. So that's awesome. And celebrating that. Yep. And now, now hang on, let me get this out of the way. I know some of y'all are mourning, all right? Uh, last night was rough. I get it. I get it. Um, but we're talking about Jesus today, all right? Amen. Like, we're moving right past that to more important things. And, uh, and we're talking about life change. In fact, today, this is awesome. Uh, all told, this morning, we're going to baptize about 45 people at Johnson Ferry this morning. There you go. That's right. A lot of those are students that we're going to baptize uh, in the 1130 service, but even at this service, we're going to celebrate people um, taking that next step with Jesus. Love it. Just love your heart for that. And I love Christmas. I don't know about you, but I, I love Christmas. I love the season. In our family, we decorate our house for Christmas the day after Halloween. I don't know if any, any of you do that. Uh, don't judge me. I, I can't help it if your heart's not big enough to handle that. It's not my <laughs> issue, but we... We decorate and, and love the season, love all the traditions. Our family has a lot of traditions. I'm sure yours uh, does as well. And of course, we have the gifts. Who doesn't like gifts? And yes, I know gifts can turn into consumerism and all that. At the same time, Christmas is all about the ultimate gift of Jesus, and it's God's heart to give to us, and we give out of gratitude for Him. I, I remember one Christmas as a kid, our family would get up on Christmas morning and then drive to our grandparents' house. Now, we changed that. We don't do that anymore. But as a kid, we used to do that. And so we kind of have Christmas at our house and drive to my grandparents' house. I remember this one Christmas, we went to my grandparents' house, and you're there with your cousins and extended family, and they were all exchanging gifts. And I was probably eight years old or something. And all I got from my family were things like socks and sweaters. I, I bet in hell they give socks and sweaters uh, every single... Christmas. And I remember the next day, my dad felt so bad for me that he drove to a store that was open and bought me a toy. Uh, and, and I love that. I don't even remember what the toy was, but I remember the heart of my father who, who gave to me because of his love for, for me. And, and I think that's what Christmas is all about. It's about giving gifts. And we're going to look at the ultimate gift of Jesus through the Christmas story today. And we're going to talk about the Magi uh, these wise men who brought these gifts. Now, even if you're not a church person, you're not a believer in Jesus, you probably know a lot of the Christmas story. I don't want to assume that, but you probably know a lot of the Christmas story. In fact, I bet you can tell me the three gifts 
that the Bible says the wise men or the magi gave to Jesus. What are the three gifts? All right, the first one was gold. Second is? Yeah, the third is myrrh. And we're gonna, we're gonna read about that in a minute. And these are all ways that indicate their appreciation of and understanding of who Jesus is. In fact, we're gonna read in just a minute where it says that they worship Jesus. And the word literally means to put your face on the ground. So, so when the when the wise men, I see this, when the wise men worshiped, it, it, was, like, it was like this. And, and it wasn't a joke. It was that, you know, you were kissing the ground. You know, in, in other cultures, you might, you might kiss someone's cheek peer to peer, but you put your face on the ground in front of a holy God. And they understand who Jesus is. And this gives us, I think, a great understanding of how we are to worship Jesus. So let's look at the story together. In Matthew chapter two, if you have a copy of God's word in front of you, um, grab it or we'll have it on the screens. And if you're physically able, would you stand while I read for you Matthew chapter two, verses one through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet. And then here they quote the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way and behold the star which they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until it came to a stop over the place where the child was to be found. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after they came into the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Father, many of us are hearing this for the hundredth time, some for the first. God, I pray that once again, you would speak to us through your word, that your spirit would work in a powerful way, that we would understand more of who Jesus is, even in this short story. And God, think about how that applies to our life as we live on mission for him. Father, we love you and thank you. What a privilege it is to have your word and to reflect upon it. Lord, cut out the distractions, all the things that are just trapping our minds, and would we be open to your word? Would your voice be the loudest in our ears? And we'll pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. (laughs) 
So this text is certainly about giving. It's about more than that. But it does offer us a wonderful time as a church to think about giving. And I am so grateful as your pastor to witness firsthand how generous of a church you have been this last year. You've, you've been a generous church for a number of years, but particularly this last year, you have given above and beyond. And for those of you that are part of our family, we wanna call you, uh, we wanna call you to, to finish strong in this last year, in this last you know, few weeks of the year. But because you have been so generous, you have enabled our church to be a blessing to some ministries. So what, we, what we've done this Christmas season is that we got tons of partners all over our city and all over the world, but we have chosen four partners that are doing incredible work for Jesus that could use the blessing of generosity, and we wanna bless them this Christmas season. And so each Sunday, we're gonna show you a different ministry and celebrate um, how God is using that ministry and how you can be a blessing, and we're gonna give you a way to give above and beyond to that if you'd like to. But today, I want you to first see an incredible ministry First Care Women's Clinic, and I'll let, you, I'll let them tell you about their ministry. So let's check this out together. At First Care Women's Clinic, our mission is to be able to give men and women the resources they need to be able to save and protect and love their unborn children. We're located um, just east of Marietta Square. And in the ingenuity of God, and I would even say the justice of God, um, he saw fit that we would buy this building. And many people don't know that a building that we now use at First Care Women's Clinic to save babies used to be a Planned Parenthood. We want them to know that they have a place they can come um, and receive the same medical services, the same quality of services from licensed doctors and nurses and be able to come here. They come in because they're in crisis. They come in because they're scared. But in that moment, after they've gone through our medical department, then they're able to sit down with one of our trained consultants and, and they're able to meet with a woman who just wants to hear their story, find out why they're here, let them know that someone cares, and let them know that the body of Christ cares, Jesus cares about them, and not just about the baby, but how are you doing? What are your needs? And so First Care Women's Clinic ministers to the body of the women, the soul of the women, and their spirit, because we have the privilege of offering the free gift of salvation to every single woman that comes into our center. We served over 2,000 families this year. And we are so excited to share that of the women that were abortion-minded, almost 90% of them chose life for their unborn child after they saw an ultrasound. Your generous donation is definitely assisting us as we prepare to open our second clinic. We have a 10,000 square foot facility right here, east of Marietta Square, and it's been doing amazing. But there's such a need in the South Cobb area, in Mableton, Austell, and Lithia Springs. Your support and your prayers are more important now than ever before. Your generous giving allows us to continue to offer the free medical services, offer life skill classes, prenatal classes, abortion recovery classes. Johnson Ferry family, you have been so faithful to partner with us for years and to give so generously to us. And we thank you and appreciate all you've done. So yeah. And 
uh, I don't want to pretend like they're the exact same thing, but in many respects, Jesus' own birth was a crisis pregnancy. And it reminds us of the value of life, and we love partnering with, with this clinic, and we'll continue to do so. And throughout the building, there's a couple stations with Christmas trees. I want you to stop by there sometime and just get some more information about ways that you might serve or give to some of these ministries. Uh, but we want to be a blessing to them. So because of your generosity, uh, we were able to bless them this Christmas with a check for $75,000. So isn't that awesome? Just to say, thank you, Lord. So... Well, let's, let's think about these original Christmas gift givers, uh, the Magi, these, these wise men. And, and I gotta say, at the start, there's a lot of things we, we don't know about the Magi. Like, for instance, we, we don't know how many there were. I know the famous Christmas song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, and there were three gifts. But more than likely, there were more than three of them. They probably had an entourage with soldiers and servants just to caravan them from where they were into Jerusalem and eventually Bethlehem. So again, if you, if you have three wise men and you're in a nativity scene, it's not wrong. Just like put them in the, the living room or the kitchen. You're like, they're, they're getting there, right, eventually. Uh, because we also don't know when they showed up. We don't know when, like, was Jesus a month old? Was he two years old? It's interesting, it says that when they came into the house and saw the child, that was a word not often used for an infant. But they came in and we don't know exactly when they came. We don't know where they came from exactly. It says from the east. We don't know how they got there. Maybe they got there on camels. Uh, I don't know what it looks like for them to be on camels. I do have a picture of this wise man with, with a camel, you can see here, like, you know, so he's, maybe, maybe they were taking selfies the whole way too, I don't know. But what we do know from, from the Bible and from history is that these were prominent people particularly from Persia, from the east, from Babylon, who studied astronomy and astrology, religion, political matters. They gained such a prominence in the fifth and sixth century before the time of Christ. And, and this is really fascinating. The two roles that the Magi played for the Babylonians, one, they were like priests. And number two, I think this shows up in the Christmas story, they were kingmakers. In Babylon, a king could not be um, enthroned as a king unless he had the approval of the Magi. So what's it say that at this Christmas story, God is sending these kingmakers all the way into Jerusalem and Bethlehem to anoint a king? Let's learn about this king. They give him gifts. They give him gold and frankincense and myrrh. History tells us more about what those gifts mean than the Bible does. Matthew makes no mention about what the gold means or the frankincense means or the myrrh means. Traditionally, we have thought that the myrrh speaks to Jesus' humanity as that was the anointing oil of death. We'll talk about that. The frankincense talks about Jesus' deity as frankincense was incense that was used in times of worship. But the gold... What was the gold about? When they, when they dumped out all their gold in front of this baby king, what were they saying? They were saying that he was royalty. Now, we're going to compare and contrast two kings that both show up in the story. Both of them had the title, the king of the Jews. But which one is the real king? And more importantly, what's that have to do with our life? 
So we're going to look at King Herod, who had the title King of the Jews. We're going to look at this child, Jesus, who was the real king, and compare and compare, contrast those. So let's do that together. Number one, and if you're filling in uh, the blanks, you can do that here. By the way, for many of you who haven't had those in a while, Merry Christmas. We're glad to give you your blanks back. We want to please all of our OCD people, and we love you and are glad that you're here. Number one, the king of the Jews, Herod, number one, came to subjugate people. Jesus came to save people. It's a big difference. Subjugate, not a word we use a lot. But let's compare and contrast these. Herod, who was he? His name literally means hero's song, which is a great name, though he was not a great man, morally speaking. He called himself Herod the Great. You can already feel his humility. Who was he? Well, he wasn't Jewish. When Rome conquered Palestine, Judah and Galilee in 63 BC, uh, this area was not much used to Rome economically, but was an important geographic location. So they set a king there. And this, of course, was King Herod. He was, a, he was an Edomite. Technically, he was an Idumean. And he gained a reputation early as being loyal to Rome, politically savvy, and a brutal tyrant towards anyone that he perceived as a threat. When you go back and look at what we just read in verse three, when Herod heard about Jesus being born, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That's an interesting comment, by the way. Matthew doesn't say why all Jerusalem was troubled, but maybe they knew what Herod did when he had a threat. He was troubled. Herod's reign and rule was one of paranoia, power struggles, murder. You can read all this on your own, but you may not know this. Herod had his wife's brother, the high priest, drowned in the River Jordan near his palace. He put to death 46 members of the Sanhedrin. He killed his, his mother-in-law. He killed his wife, who also was his granddaughter. I'll let you sort that out so that she wouldn't marry anybody else. He killed several of his own sons so they would not be rivals to him. In fact, Caesar Augustus, who we read about in the Christmas story, he was once quoted as saying, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. And that describes Herod. He saw power as a way to use people, subjugate people, eliminate people who got in his way. Now compare that with Jesus who had such a different view of power and authority. When they read from the prophet Micah, they say that, that this Jesus is gonna come from a place that was unsuspecting, Bethlehem of all places. We have been so conditioned to appreciate Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus that we, we don't feel just how obscure of a town that would have been. It would be like, it'd be like, the, like the prophecy saying, and Jesus is going to come from Gumlog, Georgia. Anybody here from Gumlog? Just making sure, right? No, but that's an actual place. And that's how obscure it would be. Gumlog, Georgia, Jesus was born and he would come to shepherd his people. Now, if Herod's name means hero's song and he thought of himself as a hero, what does Jesus' name mean? The angel came and said to Mary and Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Did you know that Jesus' name means God saves? That should tell you something about the essence and the ministry of Jesus. His name literally means God saves. 
That's at the heart of Christmas, God coming to, to save the world. And in, in many respects, Jesus' ministry uh, was not great in the way that we tend to think about greatness. But he came as a rescue mission to save us from our sins. I know that not everyone here is a follower of Jesus, and I don't want to presume that, and I don't want to assume that you know what this is all about, but I know Christmas for us ends up being sometimes the traditions and the rituals and the church services and the family meals and the gifts and all that. But, but don't lose the overarching story of, of where Christmas is. In the beginning of the world, we had a perfect world, a world with no cancer, no wars, no terrorists, no sin. And because we, and I say we, because Adam and Eve did what we would have done if we were there too, we gave God the stiff arm and said, God, we can do life on our own without you. Sin entered into the world and now fellowship with God was broken. But because our God is not only a God of justice, but also a God of grace, he then enacted a plan whereby he would come and rescue the world and put the world back together again. And he did that in his son, Jesus. When, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was God's way of saying to the whole world, I am coming to set you free. I am coming to rescue you. I'm coming to do everything needed so that you can once again have a right relationship with me. And this is at the heart of the gospel. You know, we live in a world today where there's just a lack of hope. We live in a world where there's cancer. We live in a world where there's wars. We live in a world where the economy is struggling. In fact, I, I saw last week an article that said suicide rates in America are at an all-time high. Why did Jesus come? He came to save us. He came to give us hope. I, I love this Don Carson quote. I think I give it every single Christmas, but I, I love it. This is what he said. He said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. Think about the difference. Herod did whatever he could to kill his rivals. Jesus came to serve and to save his rivals. He's the true king. Number two, let's compare these two kings. Herod's strength was his weakness, but Jesus' weakness was his strength. Again, Herod was known for his massive pride always trying to prove himself, always trying to justify his existence. And in many ways, he was a good leader. He was a good politician. He got things done. He was a leader. He was a builder. If you go to the Holy Land today, you'll see several things that bear the fingerprints of Herod, whether it's the remains of the second temple complex that Herod helped to build, or fortresses like Masada or seaports like Caesarea Philippi. These are all building projects that Herod was very good at doing. In fact, he built one of this, this massive fortress for himself. You can see a depiction of it here, an ancient mountain with a fortress on the top. He, in humility, named it Herodium. You can see even there his, his awesome humility on display. But he was into greatness-ism and success-ism. Now, I don't want to say that it's wrong necessarily to try to be great or successful. 
But if your definition of greatness is all about building you up in the eyes of others and all about esteeming yourself over others, Herod's great pride actually became his weakness. And a lot of us can do that, can't we? We can get addicted to greatnessism and successism. There was a study done a couple years ago with kids asking them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Teacher, governor, professional athlete. You know what the number one answer was? I want to be famous. That's so embedded in our culture, isn't it? I want to do whatever, it, whatever I can do to make myself look good in the eyes of others. In many ways, that was Herod, and it was his ultimate weakness. And yet, let's compare it to Jesus. Because for Jesus, his strength came from his humility. When I talk about Jesus' weakness, what I'm talking about is his perceived humility. If you were standing around watching Jesus at the time of his ministry on the earth, you would be hard-pressed to say that he is great. Now, we think he's great because we know who he is and what he's done, but, but back in the day, you're watching him, you're thinking, is this guy great? I mean, he's born in Bethlehem, some little no-name town. He's raised in Nazareth. I mean, if he's so great, why doesn't he go to Rome or to Jerusalem? His followers aren't great. His disciples were these, we would say, blue-collar fishermen. They weren't from the religious elite of the day. His ministry wasn't all that great. Yeah, he did some amazing things, miracles and healings. I mean, that, that's amazing. But at the same time, he didn't do something the whole world saw at one time. And in many respects, his death wasn't great. If you didn't understand what was going on, you're thinking, why is he dying like a common criminal with all these other criminals hanging on crosses? And yet Jesus is teaching us something about true greatness. There's this one story where the kids were coming to Jesus. And, and by the way, we, see, we live in a world where our kids let's be honest, sometimes in an unhealthy way, drive a lot of our decisions. But in Jesus' day, it was almost the opposite. Kids were kind of a menace. And there's this one time where these kids are all coming to see Jesus and Jesus loved children. And his disciples, like most people their age, were like, hey, kids, get out of here. You don't bother in Jesus. And, and he's like, no, 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 let, let the kids come to me. And he used it as an example to his followers. And he said this, Matthew, he said, whoever will humble himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is not weak, but he is humble, and he is gentle, and he is kind. Herod's strength was his weaknesses. Jesus' weakness was his strength. All right, let's keep comparing these. Who gets the gold? Number three, Herod was driven by what he might lose. Jesus was driven by what he would gain. If you think about it, Herod's whole life was built on paranoia, on controlling people, and this great inner fear that any given moment, I might lose everything I have gotten. We know that history tells us he died a horrific death. He died of what many scholars think was some kind of kidney disease and and they also diagnosed him as having some kind of maggot-infested disease that ate him from the inside out. Um, kids, if you want more information about that, ask your parents at lunch. They would love to tell you about that. <laughs> but here's what's interesting, too. Herod was so apparently, he was so paranoid that he had an order that upon his death, whenever he died, he had selected key individuals in Judea 
that were to be executed so that someone would mourn his death with all the death that was going around the city? How, how, how insecure and fear-driven do you have to be to somehow manipulate your death so that people will cry, seeing it as a time of mourning? He was driven by fear, what he might lose. Jesus was never driven by fear. In fact, Jesus was always driven by what he had from his heavenly father and what he would gain by accomplishing the will of his father. Jesus said this in John 10, 10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life, life and have it to the full. Don't you love that we have abundant life in Jesus? That, that doesn't mean that life is always easy, but there is always joy in Jesus. And, and Jesus is always driven by a joy of his father that spills over into how he treats people. He doesn't walk around thinking, I may, I may lose all this one day. No, there's this settled, steady confidence. And if we have Jesus, we have that same confidence. Finally, we're comparing two different kings of the Jews. Notice this, Jesus is God with us. That's what his name means, Emmanuel, God with us. Herod is us without God. Now, none of you would walk out of here and say, I am just like Herod, or I wanna be like Herod one day. You know enough about the story to know that's not a good thing. But how many times are we like Herod? Herod exemplifies a life without God at the center, a life driven by pride, a life, a life driven by selfishness, a life driven by fear and loss of control. How many of our prayers are often driven by God? I'm scared about this. Don't let me lose this, God. Yet Jesus Christ is God with us and God in us. I tell you, there's easy, there's, it's, easily to, uh, it's easy to make fun of Herod and to look down on him, but I, I will tell you one thing. There is one thing that I will commend about Herod that every single one of you needs to do. You know what he did that we all need to do? He took Jesus seriously. And so here's the question, here's the question. This is maybe the key question in the morning for you and your life and where you stand with God. It's this, who is the king of my life? I mean, really? Who, who is the king of your life? Now, we don't use that terminology a lot, king, monarchy, because that's not our form of government. That's not where you're used to. We, we like having a president. You know why we like having a president? It's because we can eventually vote him out. You don't like him? We'll get another one. But if you have a king, you don't get a choice. That's a king for a life. Well, we have a good king, Amen a good king and his name is Jesus and he came to save and he came to give us life and life to the full and he came to fill that void that we will not have without him and he is a good king. So the question is, is Jesus the king of your life? It's easy to say, it's easy to sing. One of my favorite songs, what a beautiful name. We sing this lyric, you, you have no rival, you have no equal, we say. There's no God other than, than you. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. Easy to sing, but do we actually live like that? In just a few, few moments, we're gonna see the display of what it looks like when Jesus is your king.
and that's through baptism. But before we do that, I, I wanna give you five very quick questions, and I want you to write these down, and I'm gonna challenge you this week, between now and next Sunday, to sit down and think about these five questions. In fact, not just think about them, have a conversation with your spouse, with a trusted friend, someone who knows you and can speak into your life. As we think about, is Jesus really the king of my life? Five questions, write these down. You can talk about them later. Number one, is Jesus the king of my home life? Meaning, do I treat my wife, my husband, my kids, my friends, do I, do I treat them in the way that Jesus wants me to treat them? Herod looked at people as people to subjugate and people to serve him. Jesus looks at people as people to love and to serve. Do you look at your family that way or is your family, do they just kind of get in the way of your otherwise happy life? I, I love my girls, I love my, I love my wife, I love my three girls. Uh, they have a lot of feelings at my house, a lot of a lot of feelings, and I've noticed a lot of days, you know, you come in, it's a little bit like, you know, checking the weather, like what's the temperature in here right now? And let's just be honest, the hours of 6 to 9 p.m. can be a little rough. Can I get a witness, anybody with kids? A little rough? Um, and, and, and after a long day, here's my natural inclination. I come home and I, I'm thinking, how can they serve me? That's, I'm just be honest. So I have to stop and pray, God, how can I go and give them the best three hours of my day and serve them? I don't always do that well. That's what it looks like when Jesus is the king of your home life. Is Jesus the king of your professional life? Does your job honor Jesus as king? Is your job immoral? Does your job make money off of taking advantage of people? These are things you need to think through, pray through. Is your job asking you to compromise being a follower of Jesus? Now you have to be some kind of Bible thumper who always quotes Bible verses every sentence. But at the same time, here's a convicting question. Do your people at work even know that you follow Jesus? I mean, if I went to your workplace with you tomorrow and just asked like five random people, do they know? Number three is, is Jesus the king of my intellectual life? Is my mind being renewed by the things of God? There's no IQ test. God doesn't love me more if I quote more Bible verses or memorize more things. At the same time, in our world of superficial knowledge, am I thinking deeply about the things of Jesus? Am I reflecting and meditating and reading well the deeper things of Jesus? Number four, is Jesus the king of my physical life? Does the way I use my body do the things I put into my body, do those represent Jesus as king? And, and I don't like preaching that right now at Christmas because this is a hard time of year to say that. I mean, I get to my office every day, there's about 10 cakes. It's like manna from heaven. All y'all are baking stuff. You're like, let's give it to the preacher. So my desk is filled with cakes and cookies. And it's hard. It's like that old joke of, you know, the stages of your life, right? You know, stage one, you believe in Santa. Stage two, you don't believe in Santa. Stage three, you are Santa. Stage four, you look like Santa. Like I'm, I'm heading into that, right? But really, 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 if we, don't, if we don't treat Jesus as king in the way we take care of these physical bodies, it might prevent us from fulfilling the call that God has put on our life because we don't have the energy, we don't have the motivation. We don't have the strength. Is Jesus the king of your physical life? Finally, is Jesus the king of your private life? 
your private life? And, and I mean this in two different ways. One, there's just the morality question. This sounds like your grandmother, but it's a good question. Is there anything you're doing right now in your life that you would stop doing if Jesus came and sat down beside you? That's a pretty good test. And then the other side is just the rhythms of your life. Am I, am I living with healthy rhythms that help me to connect with Jesus? Can I ask you a convicting question? In the last seven days, in the last seven days, how much unhurried time did you spend with Jesus? And if the answer is not a lot, then maybe, maybe God's saying, hey, we, we need to get this in the right order healthy rhythms. Is Jesus the king of your life? Have you given your life to him? Did you know that today you can give your life to Jesus by asking him to come into your life to forgive you, for him to be the king, for you to get off the throne of your heart and say, Jesus, I want you to be the king of my life. And be like those wise men who worshiped like this, Jesus, I give all of me to you. I bow down at your feet. I praise you, Lord Jesus. Would you be the king of my life? That's what worship looks like. Have you done that? That's what's at the heart of baptism. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna have a few folks get baptized. We're gonna celebrate because there's nothing better than see people go from death to life. Father, we just love you and thank you. Thank you for the amazing miracle of salvation. Thank you for the amazing miracle of Jesus. Thank you for being our King, Lord. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who's never given their life to Jesus, would today be that day? God, I'm so grateful for these individuals who are being baptized to symbolize what you've done in their life. And so God, in this moment of worship, we celebrate the miracle of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.